Hello and welcome to the Paranormal Sun, coming to you live from Tower Studios. I'm JT, and as always, I'll be your tour guide as we explore the unexplained. Ghost lights, spook lights, earth lights, spirit lights, will-o'-wisps, hinky punk, ignis fetus, nightfire, Joan the Wad, Pega-lantern, Pinkent, Hobby Lanterns, and Foxfire. There are many names in many places all over the world which have strange sightings of white and colored lights dancing around enigmatic sites, from India to Australia, from Norway to Texas, and from Vietnam to Canada. It is one of the most globally diverse and similar unexplained phenomena of our human experience. Among the most famous of these lights, many claim to have seen the dancing orbs of yellowish green over the Brown Mountain Range in Burke and Caldwell counties of North Carolina. No one knows what causes them or why and if they truly exist, but for decades scientists have studied them, people have looked for them, and the legend of the lights grows stronger with each passing year. Now, first and foremost, folks, I'd like to dedicate this episode to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina. I hope you're doing great wherever you are, wherever you're listening to my voice. I hope you've had a good week. I hope, I hope that you've got to enjoy yourself, spent time with family and friends, and done things that you enjoy, and done some things that you truly love. I mean, that's what life's all about at the end of the day. Uh, I, uh, there was a gentleman earlier tonight in one of the podcast groups that I'm in. It's a podcast program that I enjoy. And uh, he lives in Lake Charles, Louisiana. And, you know, I was just reading about it, and he was saying how important it was that he could listen to this podcast. And, you know, not not mine, but the podcast that uh, I'm in the group of. And he was just saying how important it is and, and how much it gives him you know, that, that bit of familiarity every day as he gets up and tries to sort things. And he's saying that, you know, he's one of the few houses in the area that's still standing, but, you know, it doesn't have any power or anything. And he's hoping life can get back to normal in about six weeks. And I was thinking to myself, you know, and, and, and I, you know, posted in the Facebook group and just told him, you know, uh, the universe has given me my share of crotch shots this year, but nothing as bad as that. So it does put things in perspective. And I hope wherever you are that, you know, you haven't had to deal with anything as bad as that this year. Now, aside from that, folks, you know, I just had a normal busy week, as I'm sure all of you have. Um, haven't had a lot of time to really delve into, uh, you know, things aside from research for this episode. But um, I'm enjoying myself. I'm trying to get some episodes built up, trying to get some research done so that I can stay ahead of the queue. And hopefully, you know, make sure that you're getting that that premium program every week once a week, you know, out there, and uh, we'll go from there. Now, as always, folks, uh, any of you that have got any ideas for the show or anything you'd like me to cover over, any questions or comments, you can reach me, you can email me at the paranormalsun uh, at gmail.com. You can go to the Paranormal Sun website. I see that there have been a lot of people who have gone on there and signed up so that, you know, when I send out the blogs and that, you get a notification. And um, look, again, you know, Really appreciate that, and I, I hope that, you know, you, you enjoy the content that I put out there. Now, as always, you know, again, I'd, uh, I'd just like to give a few shout-outs, of course, to all of you who listen everywhere in the world. Anyone who's hearing my voice, thank you so much for listening. I do really appreciate it. Uh, and as I say, this episode is dedicated to Harry and Lisa in North Carolina. And, you know, um, just want to give a few other shout-outs, of course, to Eddie and his family in California 
you know, hang tight there. Be safe uh, with all the fires raging around you. It's really insane right now. You know, um, this year is just straight out of a horror movie, you know, in a lot of ways for people. So you stay safe, Eddie. Uh, Adriana and Nico in Texas, again, you know, you stay safe with everything going on. Chris and his family in Illinois, you know, Chris and Max and the family, you know, you all stay safe. And uh, the Chicago land listeners, my listeners in France, my listeners all over the U.S., all over the world, New Zealand, Australia, you name it. Thank you so much for listening. And again, you know, just thank you, you know, from the bottom of my heart. Of course, you know, to the Fidianga tribe, to my Montana family, and to the listeners at the asylum, thank you all for listening. And then, of course, uh, you know, Matt, Dave, and Scott at the Old 77. Thanks, you know, for all the support, all the kind words you've had to say to uh, the team at the Quite Unusual podcast as well. Thank you so much. Um, and, you know, it just means the means the world to me. So with all that out of the way, folks, you know, um, yeah, you know, I, I just really hope that you've had a good week. Sometimes we just have those moments of reflection and we think about, you know, how lucky we are to be on this earth, to be doing the things that we enjoy. And, um, you know, the last few days has been a bit of that for me. So, you know, from the bottom of my heart, I hope that you enjoy what I put out there. And again, you know, you can go and uh, follow the show on the Instagram account. So, you know, the Paranormal Sun on Instagram. You can go to the ParanormalSun.com website, as I say. You can go to the Paranormal Sun Facebook page. Uh, you can go and support me on Patreon if you'd like to. You can go to the Paranormal Sun and, you know, drop a few dollars in the coin box there, you know, in the um, in the uh, PayPal account if you'd like to. But again, I know it's been a rough year on everyone, so uh, obviously absolutely no pressure. And that's why, uh, you know, thank you to Harry and Lisa, because without their continued support, uh, there'd be a lot of things for the show that I wouldn't, you know, be able to to do. I'd really be scraping uh, the bottom of the barrel. So thanks again for that support. Now, with all that out of the way, folks, I'll be moving over to the News of the Damned. And for those of you who may be new to the program, Charles Fort is one of the first people who really started categorizing these type of things, you know, in the field that I do, paranormal, unexplained, sea monsters, ghost ships, things crashing from outer space, all sorts of things. He started gathering and putting these stories and uh, things from newspapers and periodicals around the world into books and publishing them so that people could, uh, you know, study them and see the patterns. And Charles Fort always referred to any data that was excluded by science or ignored as damned data. Therefore, this segment is always called the News of the Damned. And I always try to give you at least three articles every week of, you know, something in these uh, areas. And a lot of times I'll be updating articles that I've covered over before or kind of ongoing news segments. Now, one of those tonight is about Forrest Fenn. And I only just found out, you know, as I went to air, basically, uh, that a few days ago, Mr. Fenn died. So these articles are all from coasttocoastam.com. So uh, again, for those of you who are new listeners to the show, coasttocoastam.com was started by Art Bell. And, you know, it's, it's kind of the biggest paranormal or what would you say uh alternative you know kind of uh 
nightly talk show in the U.S. on AM radio. So it's an excellent clearinghouse for kind of strange news, odd news, and things like that. And uh, the story behind Forrest Fenn's treasure, I'll give it to you in a very quick snippet. Basically, an art dealer named Forrest Fenn about 15, 20 years ago, he was dying from cancer. He thought he was on his last legs. So he gathered a little over a million dollars worth of gold, jewels, and some other things. He put them in a chest and he buried them somewhere in the Rocky Mountains. And then he published a book and had some clues in the book to get people to go out and look for this treasure. And the whole point of it, in his mind, was to get people out into nature and enjoy it. Now, earlier this year, as I covered over, somebody claimed to have discovered the treasure. Forrest Fenn had said that he had discovered the treasure, this person, but there was a lot of controversy kind of swirling around it. The only certainty that we know as far as the details, because the person who, you know, quote, discovered the treasure, unquote, uh, the only details that we know is that he found it in Wyoming, according to Forrest Fenn. So as always on Coast to Coast AM, Tim Banal is the, you know, kind of website guru over there. So all of these articles are, you know, bylined by Tim Banal. So it says here, art dealer and author Forrest Fenn, who famously created a decade-long treasure hunt that grew to near-mythic proportions, has passed away at the age of 90. Well, that's a good life. A former combat pilot for the U.S. Air Force in Vietnam, he rose to prominence in 2010 with the publication of his memoir, The Thrill of the Chase, which announced that he had hidden a cache of gold, artifacts, and other precious items somewhere in the Rocky Mountains, and that the hoard of riches could be found by deciphering a poem presented in the book. As word of the audacious challenge spread, the tantalizing tale of hidden treasure captured the imagination of the public and the mystery of the elusive riches became something of a sensation. Over the course of the next 10 years, hundreds of thousands of people attempted to solve the riddle of Fenn's treasure by way of vibrant online communities, as well as on-the-ground expeditions to the Rocky Mountains in search of what various starry-eyed individuals who believed that they had figured out where the riches were hidden. The quest was not without controversy, as at least five people perished in pursuit of the treasure, and countless others required rescue due to the search going awry. Despite these tragic events, as well as the incidents of harassment which befell him due to the hunt, Fenn repeatedly rebuffed requests by authorities to put an end to the challenge and insisted that the treasure was hidden in a safe location rather than some treacherous spot. The treasure hunt ultimately and shockingly came to an end earlier this summer when Fenn announced that an unnamed individual from back east had found the riches. While some people had, who had long been searching for the cash were crestfallen by this development, others expressed misgivings with the mysterious nature in which the news was revealed, especially since the solution to where the riches had been hidden was still kept a secret. Subsequent photos of the treasure, as well as the revelation that it had been located in Wyoming, did little to quell the unease among disappointed treasure hunters yearning to know the complete answer to the mystery as well as skeptics who expressed doubt that the story of the hidden riches was entirely on the level. Understandably, believers and doubters alike pinned their hopes on the possibility that Fenn would eventually reveal more information about the treasure, either in the form of the location where it was found or by way of solutions to the various clues he placed in the literary map. Alas, with his passing, those answers may be lost forever unless the individual who found the riches decides to break their silence at some point in the future or, failing that, a Fenn family member or friend privy to the information decides to come forward with insights into the mystery. Should neither of those scenarios occur, 
The solution to the hunt appears destined to remain unsolved, which is what its creator may have been hoping for all along. Now, folks, um, I have stated on this program more than once that I wasn't necessarily sold that the treasure had been discovered for a few reasons. You know, one, um, as they said here earlier, I thought that maybe it could be Forrest Fenn trying to take some of the pressure off, you know, because there had been people who died, etc. And if he said that the treasure was discovered, well, then, you know, people would stop looking for it or, you know, at least that is the theory. Um, you know, there are other stories and other theories that basically there was no treasure. Fenn basically wanted to sell books and this was how he did it was, you know, he basically said there was a treasure, but there was never a treasure. And then he said that someone discovered it, you know, but in reality it was, you know, all a smokescreen. I don't necessarily believe that. I, I personally think from what I saw of Mr. Fenn, that he was a man of his word. Um, but again, like I say, um, I, I do believe that there was the potential, at least, that he might have said that it was discovered when it hadn't been. Now, I do, you know, with this timing, with him passing away, oftentimes older people, as we all know, they'll be hanging on to life for a certain reason. And, you know, for example, you've heard these stories of someone on their deathbed and they're waiting for a relative to get there before they pass away. Um, you know, or they might, you know, someone might want to see their child graduate from school or something similar. And maybe that was the case with Mr. Finn. Maybe he wanted to see this treasure discovered before he passed away. And once it had been discovered, you know, he could, he could die in peace. So, um, yeah, well, um, you know, again, <laughs> it's, it's, it's an interesting story and I'm sure at some point in the future, we'll get at least some kind of update. Now, the next article is, as I say, it's also from coasttocoastam.com, and this one is titled, Massive Search for ET Signals Finds None, again by Tim Banal, an ambitious attempt to locate signs of alien life by scanning a staggering 10 million stars sadly failed to find any evidence for extraterrestrials. The survey of space, which was the largest of its kind, was reportedly conducted by, by astronomers in Australia who enlisted the powerful Murchison Whitefield Array Telescope to search for radio emissions in the vicinity of the Vela constellation. Over the course of 17 hours, co-lead astronomer Dr. Chinoa Tremblay explained they observed the region more than 100 times broader and deeper than ever before. Alas, a subsequent analysis of the data collected by the project determined that there were none of these so-called technosignatures, which would be an indication of a possible intelligent alien origin. While the findings from the search are undoubtedly disappointing to anyone hoping for that elusive moment of first contact, co-lead astronomer Stephen Tingay noted that although the survey was rather massive, in comparison to the vastness of space, it was the equivalent of trying to find something in the Earth's oceans by only searching a volume of water equivalent to a large backyard swimming pool. With that in mind, it's entirely within the realms of possibility that the project came up short simply because it was looking into in the wrong cosmic spot. To that end, Tingay expressed hope that further advancements in the sensitivity of telescope arrays, including a facility currently being built which will be capable of detecting Earth-like radio signals from relatively nearby planetary systems, and mused that we have to keep looking. Well, look, folks, um, that is the reality. The universe is freaking massive. You know, in our own galaxy, in the Milky Way, you know, there's 
billions and billions of stars, you know. As Carl Sagan used to say when I was a young boy, billions and billions. You know, the the, the universe is so massive. Um, <laughs> it would literally just be dumb luck, in my opinion, if we pointed a telescope in a certain, uh, you know, position and happened to pick up waves. The second thing I'll say, and, and a lot of you out there who follow this sort of things, if you've got extraterrestrials out there, and they're far more advanced than us, how do we know that we're necessarily going to pick up these signs of technological, you know, you know, technological signatures? We have no way of knowing that. Everything that we know about aliens has been basically sci-fi dreamed up by a human's brain. How can a human brain wrap itself around the way that an alien would think or do things? And that, to me, if, if in fact there have never been aliens that have visited this planet and we've had no interactions with them, then, like I say, we everything that we consider alien has all just been dreamt up by mankind's imagination. So it makes it very difficult to know what they do, how they think, how far advanced they may be of us. They may, they may communicate in a completely different way. They may communicate, you know, ways that, that we couldn't even fathom or couldn't even conceive of. So I don't blame them for looking, but yeah, definitely, um, you know, if you had to say to me, oh, how, how on a scale of one to 10, how disappointed are you? Zero. I mean, it's, it's nothing. It's a drop in the bucket. You know, get back to me if in a thousand years we haven't heard from any other civilizations. Okay, folks, and the third and final uh, article for this evening, and it is quite funny because it's like three of the biggest areas that I cover on the paranormal sun. So kind of lost treasures and, and you know, lost civilizations and that with Forrest Fenn. The second one kind of being around ETs and outer space and UFOs. And the third one is about the Loch Ness Monster. So this one's also from Tim Madon. And there's a photo here. And again, I forgot to say at the top of the uh, News of the Dam, folks, as you know, there's always links in the show notes. So you can go and look at these links for yourself. And this one is titled, Tourist Photographs Loch Ness Monster? Question mark. Again, by Tim Benall. A tourist who recently visited Loch Ness suspects that there may, they may have snapped a photo showing the site's legendary monster. The image in question was reportedly taken by an individual identified only as Mr. Van Scherbeck, who says that he was at the famed location in Scotland late last month while on vacation with his family. Upon returning home, the man was looking over his photos from the trip and spotted, in one of the pictures, the puzzling form that can be seen emerging from the water. Alas, since Van Sherbeck did not notice the oddity until after his visit to Loch Ness, the curious potential creature managed to avoid being observed at the time the picture was taken, and as such, were left with only the admittedly hard-to-decipher image as evidence of the event. Be that as it may, the tourist subsequently submitted the photo to the Loch Ness Sightings Register, where it was accepted as the seventh report of the year and, remarkably, just the second time in 2020 that Nessie may have appeared to someone at the actual site rather than by way of webcam. Uh, yeah, look, folks, I'm looking at the photo now, and it's <laughs> if, if you think that you're going to look at this and see, like, a head above the water quite clearly and that, it's, it's nothing, you know, that great. But again, you know, oftentimes it's the little pebbles 
you know, that make up the foundation of discovering anything like this. Many times in the past where it's been, um, you know, animals that were believed to be extinct and then they've been, you know, been found to still be alive. Um, sometimes it's just a one-off, but sometimes it's just lots of things like people finding feathers and, you know, and, and, and it's that old saying, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire. So we'll wait and see. Um, I would say that a lot of the reason that there haven't been so many sightings this year is obviously the quarantining in the UK and uh, the COVID-19 and people, you know, staying home. People aren't out holidaying and running around. Well, they have been as of late, but, you know, um, yeah, it's been quite difficult. Uh, even people in our own countries, I mean, um, here a lot of people don't have jobs, so they're not traveling around in, in New Zealand to go and see things. So, yeah, folks, as always, I'll have links to all of those in the show notes. And, again, if there's a topic that you'd like to hear or if you're just wondering, hey, when are you going to get to this one, JT? Because as I've said on this program many times, I've got a backlog of shows, probably got 100 to 200 topics just sitting there to, to work my way through. And um, every time I get through one, I, I get off, go down a rabbit hole, and I, found, I find four or five more that I add into the show. So if there is something that you'd like to request or, you know, just something – even if it's uh, an article, as I've had a few of the friends of the show will flick them through to me, and then I'll read them on the air, you know, by all means, get a hold of me. Send me an email, drop me a message. Um, you know, I always love to hear from you as the listeners. So that's the news of the damned for this evening. I hope that you've enjoyed it. I hope that it's been something that's added a little bit of um, knowledge to, uh, to you. You know, I try and give you a bit of a roundup of the week, what's going on. And uh, with that, you know, I will be moving on now to one of the most long-standing and enigmatic mysteries of America in general, but especially the Appalachians and the East Coast of America, and that is the Brown Mountain Lights in North Carolina. Just one last thing, folks, before I get into the story of the Brown Mountain Lights, I very foolishly forgot about a close friend of the program who is from the area around Brown Mountain. And so, although this program is dedicated to Harry and Lisa, it's also dedicated to Brooke and her family, who are from very close to Brown Mountain. During the daylight hours, there is little that makes Brown Mountain stand out from the ridges and valleys that surround it. The ridge, situated near the town of Morganton in western North Carolina, is not especially tall or striking, yet it is home to one of the most famous unexplained phenomenon in the U.S. The Brown Mountain lights are unexplained phenomena that appear low in the air under favorable atmospheric conditions, grow in size, and then linger for a few minutes before fading away. Brown Mountain is located on the Burke-Caldwell County line, approximately half a mile west of Wilson Creek and northwest of Morganton. A remarkable aspect of these lights is the fact that they often display themselves as if guided by some kind of intelligence. Stops, hard angle turns, hovering, and they're just plain moving about in general, can give one the distinct impression that these lights have an intelligence to them. The light sizes are varied, sometimes as big as several stars in appearance, with a deep red or sapphire blue color to them. At other times, they are so numerous and moving so fast, it is hard to keep track of them at all. At times, only one, or a few, or none at all appear during a night's darkness. Early autumn is considered the most active season for this so far unexplained phenomenon, 
but they can and do appear throughout the year. There have been sightings of the lights in North Carolina for centuries. Francis Kess Stevens wrote in his book, Ghosts of North Carolina and Piedmont, that stories about the lights were told by the Cherokee as far back as 1200 A.D. The Cherokee have a legend about a great battle that was fought that year between the Cherokee and the Catawba Indians near Brown Mountain, Kess Stevens wrote. The Cherokee believed that the lights were the spirits of Indian maidens as they searched over the centuries for their dead husbands. The Cherokee have other legends of the mountain as a portal that contains a, a kind of door that leads to another dimension or another world. Whole villages sometimes relocated through this portal. A 50-year-old book by a researcher and author named Alexander Key wrote about one of these doorways. Cass Stevens wrote that the lights are also attributed to ghosts doomed to walk back and forth across the mountain for all eternity, and the spirit of a slave searching the woods for his master. The first white man to report on the lights was an early European explorer, a German surveyor named G.W. de Brom, who visited the area in 1771 and concluded that the apparitions were nitrous vapors which are borne by the wind, but there is no hard evidence his observations were made at Brown Mountain. The lights have been documented since 1833 by locals, prompting investigation and inspiring song and story. As few as one and as many as a dozen lights might be seen all at one time. They are mostly white, but occasionally show a red, blue, or yellowish tinge. The lights appear most often on clear, warm summer evenings, beginning shortly after dark. Although various authorities have studied the Brown Mountain lights, no entirely satisfactory scientific explanation has been offered. The U.S. Geological Survey has suggested that the lights may be the result of refraction of headlights on trains or automobiles in the valley. The National Geographic Society reports that discharges of static electricity might be the source of the lights. Folklorists credit an Indian brave searching by torchlight for his lost love. Others tell of a man who murdered his wife and child and secretly buried them on Brown Mountain. Shortly thereafter, the lights began appearing over the hidden graves. Locals were drawn to investigate the illumination and discovered the bodies. However, the murderer escaped and was never seen nor heard from again. Other stories link the lights to the disappearance and possible murder of a woman named Belinda in the 1850s. So the legend goes, the woman disappeared one day while in the Brown Mountain area. Locals suspected the woman's husband of murdering her. As searchers combed the woods for Brown, uh, Brown Mountain, an eerie light appeared overhead. Those who witnessed it believed the flickering light was the woman's ghost either returning to haunt the murderer or attempting to help searchers find her body. One source, Levin from 1908, encountered a light like a toy fire balloon, a distant ball, much smaller than the full moon, much larger than any star, and very red. Another, Mr. Perry in 1919, stated he saw a glowing ball of light, slightly yellow and lasting half a minute. Again, another witness, named Gregory, with no date, described a light like a ball of incandescent gas in which a seething motion could be observed. Still another, Mr. Harris in 1921, reported a pale white light as one seen through a, a ground glass globe, having a halo around it. Now, the first article that was in any publication about the Brown Mountain Lights was published in the Charlotte Daily Observer in 1913, and I have that entire article here, and I'm going to read it for you verbatim. No explanation. Burke County's mysterious light still baffles investigators. Special to the observer. Linville Falls, September 23, 1913. The mysterious light that is seen just above the horizon almost every night form rattlesnake knob 
near Cold Spring on the Morganton Road, about seven miles from here, is still baffling all investigations. All theories as to its origin or nature have either been exploded or fall through from lack of evidence to support them. With punctual regularity, the light rises in a southeasterly direction from the point of observation just over the lower slope of Brown Mountain, first about 7.30 p.m., again about 20 or 30 minutes later, and again at 10 o'clock. It looks much like a toy fire balloon, a distinct ball with no atmosphere about it, and nearly as the average observer can measure it, about the size of a toy balloon. It is much smaller than the full moon, much larger than any star, and fiery red. It rises in the far distance from beyond Brown Mountain, which is about six miles from Rattlesnake Knob, and after going up a short distance, wavers and goes out in less than one minute. The observer has to watch the sky closely at the right time or he will miss it. It does not always appear in exactly the same place, but varies what must amount in the distance to several miles. The light is visible at all seasons, so Mr. Anderson Lovin, an old and reliable resident, testifies. During the winter, it appears far off to the south of the usual summer position and is not visible from Rattlesnake Ridge, or sorry, Rattlesnake Knob, but is seen from a point further down the turnpike, around the point or ridges that hides it from the summer point of observation. Many have scoffed at this spooky thing, and those members of the Morganton Fishing Club who first saw it more than two years ago were laughed at and accused of seeing things at night as a result of a common human frailty. But as more and more persons have seen it, various attempts have been made to explain the mystery. That it is no, no mere reflection of some other light has been disproved. Some have declared that it was some practical joker sending up a light to mystify people, but it would hardly be kept up for several years, nor would it appear miles apart within a few minutes. There seems to be no doubt that the light rises from some point in the wide level country between Brown Mountain and the South Mountains, a distance of about 12 miles though it is possible that it rises a still greater distance. So that's the article from the 1913 Charlotte Daily Observer. And soon after that article was published, a congressman, E.Y. Webb, requested that the U.S. Geological Survey investigate the Brown Mountain Lights. Soon after, a U.S. Geological Survey employee, D.B. Stewart, studied the area in question and determined the witnesses had mistaken train lights for something more mysterious. 1920 to 1923, North Carolina. Reports of brilliant spheres or disks appearing from time to time during the three years, moving in leisurely from formation or singly in the neighborhood of the Brown Mountains. Much talk, official investigation draws blank. Desmond Leslie, 1953. Later, Senators F.M. Simmons and L.S. Overman requested another more extensive investigation, and George Rogers Mansfield was con commissioned to conduct the survey. The formal U.S. Geological Survey began in 1922, which determined that witnesses had misidentified automotive or train lights, fires, or mundane stationary lights. However, according to a marker on the Blue Ridge Parkway, a massive flood struck the area soon after the completion of the USGS study. All electrical power was lost and trains were inoperative for a period of time thereafter. Several automotive bridges were also washed out. The Brown Mountain Lights, however, continued to appear. Many locals felt the report was pure hogwash. The lights had supposedly been seen long before autos and locomotives. Plus, in 1916, another great flood wiped out transportation routes. There were no trains or autos in the area for more than a week. However, the lights continued to be seen. 
Perhaps the most famous variation on the story of the Brown Mountain Lights, however, comes from a song of the same name, and you would have heard it at the intro. Country music singer Scott Wiseman penned the tune and first performed it with his wife Myrtle, Eleanor Cooper. Together, the pair took the stage as Lulu Bell and Scotty and performed throughout the 1930s and 40s, earning the nickname the Sweethearts of Country Music. The song speaks of a strong ghost light appearing every night, which no scientist or hunter can, can explain. The eerie glow shines like the crown of an angel above Brown Mountain before fading from view as the mists come and go. According to North Carolina Ghost Stories, Wiseman grew up in a small town near the lights. His uncle, who took Wiseman hunting on Brown Mountain when he was young, would tell the story of the lights. The song was later covered by a variety of artists, from the Kingston Trio and Acoustic Syndicate to Sonny James and Roy Orbison, among others. I've seen them enough times that I know they're real. I can't tell you what they are, but I can tell you that they definitely exist. Author of Are Those the Brown Mountain Lights? Charles Braswell, Jr. Another government investigator was George Mansfield, who investigated the lights for the U.S. Department of Interior in 1971. Mansfield wrote that the lights were seen by members of Morganton Fishing Club who were laughed at and accused of things, seeing things at night by others in the community. Some have thought that these lights were of supernatural origins. Others have dreamed that they might indicate enormous mineral deposits, Mansfield wrote. Many who have not had such visions have looked upon them as a natural wonder. In his report, Mansfield wrote that D.B. Sterrett, a member of the U.S. Geological Survey, was sent to observe the lights and determine their origin. Mansfield reported that Sterrett declared the lights were nothing but locomotive headlights seen over the mountain from neighboring heights. Since about 1960, tales of UFOs, alien contact, and interdimensional beings have proliferated, as well as little people, fairies, and such. A local man named Ralph Lale claimed, that, claimed to be in telepathic communication with the lights, which he said directed him to a secret, crystal-filled cave. From there, he said, alien humanoids from a planet called Piwam took him on a space trips as they advised him how to save Earth. Lale operated the Outer Space Rock Shop Museum, where he exhib exhibited a alien mummy. In 1982, one man named Tommy Hunter even claimed he touched one of the lights that came bobbing up to the to the 181 overlook. He and other witnesses said it was a few times larger than a basketball, a bright yellowish color, and hovering three or four feet above the ground. When he touched it, Hunter said he re received an electrical shock. The light dimmed but did not dissipate, floating back off into the woods. Others who claim to have seen a light up close usually give a similar description of how it appears as Mr. Hunter. As you can tell, folks, there seems to be a little bit of confusion in some of these written reports with the names, Mansfield's names reported twice. What I can tell you is that I know there was at least one study in the early 20s, and then there was another one in the early 70s, and they both basically came to the same conclusion that it was mundane things like train lights and automobile lights. The year was 1999 when Charles Braswell Jr. first went up to the 181 Overlook in Burke County, where visitors can get a clear view of Brown Mountain. After that, Nesmith started making regular trips. On about his 35th visit, he finally saw what he thought to be the age-old North Carolina legend, the Brown Mountain Lights. It was just inspiring to see, Braswell said. I spent so much time up there looking at nothing out there in the night sky, and then this bright light shows up. It was puzzling. What did I just see? Braswell, author of the 
Are those Brown Mountain Light? Are those the Brown Mountain Lights book? Is among many of those who have seen the Brown Mountain Lights. Highly reputable witnesses, including veteran Forest Service officials who patrol the the region, have reported close-up encounters on the mountain with beach ball-sized orbs that floated by, then vanished. C.W. Smith and Les Burrell, both retired U.S. Forest Service members, report that they have seen the lights. According to Les, they look like candles, then diminished. He reports that he has seen the lights numerous times. C.W. says he's seen them twice. Numerous private groups have researched the lights throughout the years. One of the most prominent investigations was done in the mid-1970s to mid-1980s by a team of scientists from the Oak Ridge National Laboratory in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, called Orion for Oak Ridge Isosynchronous Observation Network. They, along with a group called the Enigma Project, spent years analyzing the area. Though they gathered a great deal of valuable information, they too were unable to conclusively solve the mystery. To date, modern methods have come up almost as empty-handed as any used before them. The light's origins are simply baffling to this day. Dan Canton, a physics professor at Appalachian State University and the foremost academic researcher into the lights, has favored the ball lightning theory, but has no idea why it would occur so spectacularly along Brown Mountain. Canton became interested in the lights after a student claimed to have caught them on video. We went out to Wiseman's View during the day to kind of see the lay of the land, Canton said. So we decided to pursue some remote cameras to image the ridge. Mike Fissinger says that he has worked on the project with Canton for eight years. Fissinger has never personally seen the lights, but he has interviewed 40 people who have. Two gentlemen who are reliable witnesses from Morganton saw a bright light as bright as an ATV headlight coming down, Fissinger said. All of a sudden, it crossed the Linville River towards the Wiseman's View Overlook. Using decommissioned equipment from Appalachian State's Observ- Observatory, Canton records several hundred images throughout the night using 30 to, second, 30 to 60 second exposures. Fissinger said two cameras run each night, one recording the south edge of the gorge and the other pointed north. Due to the camera's angles, they cannot see what happens in the northern half. Around 2013, Canton and a team of researchers set up a camera to stare at the mountain at night in search of the lights. They surveyed the mountainside to eliminate lights from campfires, ATVs, and hikers. Some interesting anomalies were observed, but without a second camera, it wasn't possible to know whether they were lens flares or some other technical quirk. So a second camera was added, and suddenly the lights got shy. We've been running those cameras, and we haven't seen Jack, says Canton. So I'm getting pessimistic. Today, Canton uh, attributes sightings of the lights to stars or light pollution, which alters natural light conditions. I don't think these people have any reason to lie, Canton said. They saw something that didn't, they didn't understand. Sorry, folks, I've been pronouncing this gentleman's name wrong. It's Catton, so C-A-T-O-N, not Canton. Catton said that he thinks that 95% of reports or more are bogus. However, Catton said he believes the sightings of the lights that can't be explained as light pollution could have a scientific explanation. Those are probably ball lightning, Catton says. We don't know how nature makes it, but it's been documented for more than a century. Associated with thunderstorms, ball lightning is a spherical phenomenon that appears for only seconds, moving independently through the air. Catton said that he has a theory that Glenville Gorge produces ball lightning naturally, but is unsure what triggers it. Our thought was, we'll catch some, and then we'll correlate it with other phenomena of the weather, 
geological activity and atmospheric magnetic activity, Catton said. Catton said after observing the lights for several years, there are only two incidents which he could not explain. The first took place in July 2016. We had the cameras catch something that appeared over about 20 minutes and have no real explanation for that, Catton said. Catton said the incident was brief, and the lights he had seen were almost like a flash exposure in the valley. I don't know what it was, but it wasn't really that bright firework-like thing that people describe, Catton said. Catton had a separate encounter while returning from Asheville for a project, but he said he found an explanation for what the object was. Catton said the object appeared to be brighter than Venus, but since the object was not moving like an airplane, Catton believes it was an iridium satellite or meteor. After years of researching the lights, Catton said he wants to know what they are. That way he can explain them and predict the conditions that make them appear. Now the Brown Mountain Lights have been well known in media and around the world in different places. And one of the most famous places that the Brown Mountain Lights appeared on television or in films was in an episode of The X-Files. The episode was titled Field Trip from Season 6, and it originally aired on May 9, 1999. In 2004, a science fiction novel was also published by the author R. Scott Keynes under the title The Brown Mountain Lights, the, meso the, the, me the Mesozoic Phoenix. The story centers around a scientific mystery involving the Brown Mountain Lights of North Carolina and the mass extinction of the dinosaurs. The lights have been showcased on the Travel Channel, Discovery Channel, and National Geographic Channel and continue to pop up on documentaries around the world. Over the years, hunters have reported military exercises buzzing around the mountain and Humvees that vanish into the forest, as if they disappeared down a tunnel. Many researchers and photographers claim to have been harassed by all kinds of shady officials and men in black for snooping around. Why would the military be interested in Brown Mountain? Perhaps they are interested in weaponizing the energy that creates the lights, especially if it is a powerful plasma, or if the military or if the military is in cahoots with aliens, this might be a perfect rendezvous spot. Or maybe Brown Mountain is simply a portal that distorts the laws of physics and makes contact with others and more advanced realms easier. No matter what observers see when they witness the Brown Mountain lights, what can be agreed upon is that their appearance has not been conclusively explained. The mysterious globes of light often don't appear for weeks at a time. When they do appear, they are visible, they are visible from blowing rock in neighboring Caldwell County to Grand Grandfather Mountain, which straddles Avery, Caldwell, and Watuga counties, some 15 miles distant as the crow flies. Whether you are interested in natural or paranormal explanations, or whether you're intrigued by the cultural norms and nuances of times gone by as revealed through folklore, the mysterious Brown Mountain lights continue to cause us to ponder the breadth and depth of our human existence and to reflect upon the unique history of the people of North Carolina Blue Ridge Mountains. Although various authorities have studied the Brown Mountain Lights, no entirely satisfactory scientific explanation has been offered. The U.S. Geological Survey has suggested that the lights may be the result of refraction of headlights on train or automobiles in the valley. The National Geographic Society reports that discharges of static electricity might be the source of the lights. So folks, again, you know, it is a real fascinating thing. It's been seen all over this valley, different areas, different spots. You've got people who actually claim to have touched these balls, and I found more than one 
instance, I just couldn't find a real good document documentation of the other case because it was in an article and I could only see the article clipping online and you couldn't see the whole article. So I didn't want to kind of just give you half the story. But it was saying that a couple was attacked, claims that they were attacked by the Brown Mountain Lights. Now, look, folks, as I say, I do apologize for anything in there I, I um, mispronounced. And some of the things, like I say, you know, they kind of overweave. As you'll oftentimes find with these kind of subjects, um, you know, you'll get bits and places and you'll find once you start looking them up, you start researching it online, you might find 20 or 30 sites. And most of them have grabbed a snippet from another site or something like that. So you do get a bit of, uh, you know, muddied waters when you start looking at things like this. Now, when we start looking at the theories here, so, you know, what are the theories to explain the Brown Mountain Lights that have been put forward, especially since 1913? So even though, you know, it's been claimed that these lights go back uh, nearly a thousand years, you know, 800 years, we know for a fact that it's been documented in a newspaper from 1913. So they definitely have been cited for over a hundred years. Now, one of the, one of the really interesting ones to me, uh, not that I necessarily agree with it, but one of the theories is that it's dust vented from a mica mine. So for those of you who don't know what mica is, back in the days before we had a lot of plastics and things like that, and, and, and glass was easy to produce for things like ovens, there's a natural mineral called mica that's a bit shiny. And they used to use this to uh, make, you know, oven windows and things like that way back in the day. So the whole idea is that this stuff kind of sparkles. But again, I don't know. But I could get you seeing it glittering in the daylight with light shining off of it. But at night, I don't see how it would produce its own light. It's more of a reflective material. You know, think of glitter in the air. You know, glitter is not going to light itself up. It might reflect light, but it's definitely not going to produce light. Moonshiners. Uh, here we go back to the hillbilly moonshine, you know. Um, and, the, you know, the theory behind the moonshiners is that it's moonshiners trying to scare people off from their moonshine stills. But the thing is, this has been going on, like I say now, for over 100 years. And uh, I could understand during Prohibition. But Prohibition, last time I checked, ended in the 30s, you know. Um, it sure as hell isn't still going on today. And if you watch those moonshiner shows, the last thing that they want to do is draw attention by putting up lanterns or something, you know, to quote unquote, scare people off. And also there's been so many people trampsing through and around Brown Mountain. It sure as hell wouldn't be a good place to hide a moonshine still now. Ball lightning, as, as I've discussed there, as you've seen now, I've had my own run in with ball lightning when I was a boy. We, uh, you know, we were going through a thunderstorm and uh, I saw ball lightning come out of the phone, out of the wall, you know, into the kitchen. And it is a very freaky phenomenon, I'll tell you that. Um, you know, it's been a very long time, so I'll do my best to describe it. But it was like really bright orbs about the size of maybe tennis balls or a little bigger. And they just basically floated in the middle of the room. They gave off light. I can't remember. It's been 30 plus years now, you know, 35 years I can't remember if they gave off heat, but um, it was definitely, you know, I didn't realize how rare it was until recently. So um, it is quite interesting that I had this interaction and I'm quite lucky that I wasn't fried to a cinder by one of these. Um, the best way to describe it in my mind that, you know, would be for you to understand, uh, you know, you look at something like some of these video games, uh, you know, that uh, are kind of role playing games and you'll shoot an orb of light to like light up a room. It's kind of like that, but, you know, with uh, with, a, with a lot more kind of elect electrical disturbance going off of it. 
So, um, again, I realize that he's saying that this could be natural. You know, there could be a reason why it happens here. But my question, again, would be, why does it happen at Brown Mountain and, you know, not everywhere there's a mountain range like this? There's lots of mountains made out of granite all over the world. So why is it that, you know, Brown Mountain seems to be the one place that this continually happens over and over and over again? Uh, now, mirages, this is another theory, and um, I'm going to go into real depth in it in just a minute. Uh, you know, mirages and light reflection in the atmosphere um, is one of the leading candidates for a scientific explanation. Now, another one, and again, folks, you can't make this up. Another one that has been stated over and over and over is swamp gas. So, you know, not only uh, uh, swamp gas is blamed for UFOs, now it's the Brown Mountain Lights that uh, swamp gas is, you know, supposedly uh, or the, the culprit for. But uh, I'm going to cover that over as well, and you'll soon find out why that theory doesn't really hold any swampy water. So on regor regarding the Cherokee legends as well, you know, that big battle that supposedly happened in or around the year 1200, could that big battle with the searching maidens, you know, looking for their men, could have that been a tale? Could have that been a bit of a misdirection by the Cherokee? So, you know, if there really is this interdimensional area, you know, this doorway that, that goes somewhere safe where the Cherokee could hide out, maybe that was a story to throw off the white men and uh, get, you know, keep them away from Brown Mountain so they wouldn't go searching to, to end up finding this doorway to another dimension. You know, it is quite interesting. And, and if you believe the interdimensional theory, that is definitely a possibility. If you, if you know much about uh, kind of the conquest of Central and South America by the conquistadors, by the Spanish in the 16th century, as they went through places like uh, the Amazon jungle and into the mountains, of Colombia and Peru and Ecuador, they would constantly be asking the Indians, you know, they're looking for El Dorado, they're looking for El Dorado, they're looking for the golden city. They want to know where all the gold that the uh, Incans and other tribes gathered, where did it come from? And the Indians were no fools. Once they figured that the Spanish loved gold so much, they kept telling them, oh, it's just beyond that other mountain ridge, you know. It's just another 30 miles up the road there, you know. No no problem, it's over there. And then when they'd get there, the village would tell them the same thing. No, 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 it's up further ahead. And then eventually, you know, most of these expeditions would end up starving to death or, uh, you know, dying of one of the many reasons that you die in the jungles and the mountains. And uh, so, you know, there is definitely a basis in fact for misleading le legends, you know, being told to European explorers. Now, there was one other U.S. government investigation that I forgot to include here. So there were the two from the USGS, from the U.S. Geological Survey, one in the 20s, at least one in the 20s and one in the 70s, or it could have been two in the 20s. It's quite difficult to decipher from some of the things that you read online, as I say, so I do apologize for that. Now, this third one, was a U.S. Weather Bureau report. Now, this one's very interesting, and I'll tell you why. So this report came out in 1919, and it explained the phenomenon as an electrical discharge compared to South America's Andes light. But this is the thing about it, folks. The writer that, that wrote this Weather Bureau report never went to Brown Mountain, never went anywhere near it. So he was just kind of throwing poo at the wall and seeing if it would stick. 
And that seems to be often the case with things like this. I mean, you and I may sit around and postulate on things like UFOs and uh, Atlantis, but we don't run out there publishing papers going, oh, this is what it is. And that's what really makes me laugh sometimes about the scientific community. You know, if you or I starts a website and says, uh, I don't know, um, you know, the earth is flat. Okay, the earth is flat and the sun is only 3000 miles away. Now we do that and they ridicule us or people who do it. But, you know, when you've got people in this community, if they've got credentials and they go out there and kind of throw out these crackpot ideas, you know, if they fit the narrative, oh, well, that's fine then, you know, it doesn't matter if you haven't been there or you haven't investigated it, that's fine, you know, that holds water. So it does make me laugh. Now, about mirages, as I told you, we're going to go a bit deeper into it. Now, in that 1922 investigation by the USGS, Mansfield had some conclusions. Now, one of them here, and this is pretty much verbatim from his notes, it says, Unstable atmospheric conditions in the basin-like area that is almost surrounded by mountains. With dense air comes an increase in the refractiveness or the bending of light waves. Fine particles like dust and mist can obscure and scatter the refracted light, as well as impart to it the yellowish and reddish tints that are often reported. Therefore, the light is especially active during a clearing spell following a rain, as many observers have noted. When the mist becomes quite dense, the light is obscured. The effect of the variations in atmospheric density is to sometimes increase and at other times diminish the light's intensity. Thus, a light may suddenly appear, then effectively disappear, as frequently observed. As the basin and its atmospheric conditions antedate the, late, the earliest settlement of the region, it is possible that even among the first settlers, some favorably situated light may have attracted attention by seeming to flare and then diminish or go out. As the country became more thickly settled, the number of chances for such observations would increase. Before the advent of electric lights, however, it is doubtful whether such observations could have been sufficiently numerous to cause much, com much comment, though some persons may have noted and remarked upon them. So, you know, it is quite interesting. And at the end of the day, I think that many of the mysteries in the world do have scientific explanations, or at least partially, okay? I'm not the one that thinks that science is completely wrong. I just, as I say, I think that our human science has just got a bit uh, hubris, you know? It, it's, a bit, uh, it's a bit high and mighty, and there are things that we can't explain, and that's why I enjoy things like this, because uh, I love watching people who know everything run around tearing their hair out and, you know, hoisting up explanations like flares and you know, Chinese lanterns and on and on and on verbatim swamp gas. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's not so much that I don't want us to know things. It's much more to me that um, I do find some joy when you got people who for a living tell us that they know everything that goes on on this planet and uh, they're proven wrong. So, well, less spectral justifications offered include the reflection of automobile headlights or train lights or the always reliable swamp gas, as I say, those who are perhaps a bit more credulous point out that there are no swamps in the area. So there's no swamps anywhere near Brown Mountain, folks. And reports of the lights predate the widespread use of automobiles and persisted during two massive floods, which shut down all electricity, as well as auto and railroad traffic in the valley below the ridge. So as I talked about, you know, you had two periods where there was definitely nothing in and around the mountain 
you know, man-made that could have made those lights, and yet the lights were being seen. Now, sorry, when I say man-made, I mean no trains and no automobiles. Other possible naturalistic exp explanations for the lights include an unusual electrostatic discharge generated by a slowly moving geological fault line which runs beneath the mountain. Whatever the true nature of their origins, the Brown Mountain Lights remain a potent and compelling attraction, drawing in spectators every year who come just to see the mysterious, eerie light show. The Brown Mountain Lights occur on the side of a mountain where no swampy areas exist. However, they don't appear gaseous anyway. When gas is released into the air, it spreads and diffuses into the atmosphere. The Brown Mountain Lights appear to be self-contained, concentrated balls of light, which can maneuver the mountain while traveling and clearly are not attached to a stationary fuel port. They can continue to burn for a minute or more. The lights can also be extraordinarily bright, even when viewed many miles away, seemingly far too bright for known natural gas to produce. They frequently appear when the conditions are dry. Why wouldn't balls of ignited gas burn up the mountain as they move through the trees? So, you know, folks, we've got forest fires all over the American West right now. Appalachia is no stranger to forest fires, and that's a very good point. So if you got these ignited balls of gas moving through trees and shrub, why wouldn't it catch these things on fire as it moves through? And there's not been char marks or anything like that that I know of, you know, seen. Uh, you know, when people go, you know, they might see the lights one night, they go and investigate the next day, and it's not all burned up. Plus, obviously, they'd see the fire at night. Now, according to Joshua P. Warren, Joshua P. Warren, folks, for those of you who don't know, he's a pretty humble guy, and I, I personally like what I've seen from him. He's from Asheville originally, and he's one of the people who's done the most research on the Brown Mountain Lights in modern times. So according to Joshua P. Warren, Brown Mountain is a geological conduit for massive amounts of electricity that can trigger paranormal activities. At the end of the day, though, people base their theories about the cause of the lights on their own areas of interest. In 2000, photographer Mark Ellis Bennett shot two rolls of infrared film through a visually opaque filter. As the lights appeared in the distance, both rolls were entirely overexposed, seeming to indicate a massive amount of electromagnetic energy being produced. A strong theory is that the lights may be an electrically charged plasma, a state of matter like a candle flame similar to ball lightning. The formation of such manifestations in nature is, in itself, still largely a mystery to current scientists. 100% true. No one's quite worked out, you know, how plasma works in nature and, you know, if it truly exists. You know, we were always taught growing up, you basically had three forms of matter, right? You had solid, liquid, and gas. Well, there's a fourth one, which is a plasma. But, again, they haven't necessarily explained if and how they know it does in outer space but if and how plasma exists on earth and you know how it reacts so in 1990 a book by commander x identified brown mountain as one of several underground alien bases in america and then there was the late ralph lale as i mentioned before who ran the outer space rock shop museum in the foothills and ran for congress in 1948 he said he was invited into the mountain by aliens who operated a bustling base. Lael also said they were kind enough to take him for a ride in a flying saucer, an excursion that included attractive female ETs and bikinis. So um, hold uh, 
hold your tongues ladies that want to uh, lash at me for being a chauvinist because that's Ralph Lale who talked about attractive female ETs and bikinis. Um, but again, folks, that's another can of worms that I'll open one day. The experiencers of the late 40s and 1950s uh, in the U.S. and other places who, you know, claim to have gone all these places on spaceships and encountered ETs and got taken to different planets and such. Now, again, I just wanted to say thank you to Joshua P. Warren. There are quite a few sites here that I gathered this information for, uh, for the show from, and all of those sites will be in the show notes. But Joshua P. Warren actually wrote a booklet about the Brown Mountain Lights from the, uh, I'm not sure which town it was, but, you know, I think it might have been Minville. Uh, you know, basically to give people a background on the Brown Mountain Lights and, you know, where to go to see them and things like that. And you can find that online at, you know, just if you just search brownmountainlights.com, www. Uh, I'm not sure if it's the Brown Mountain Lights or Brown Mountain Lights. But um, the site's uh, Joshua P. Warren, and on there, there's a PDF of the book that you can download. And Joshua P. Warren, he was born in Asheville, North Carolina, and he began studying the Brown Mountain Lights as a teenager. He and his team spent over a decade camped out on the site and, and brought a variety of scientists to supervise their work and share opinions. So, you know, again, this is a person who spent a lot of time doing it and was also, you know, always was and is still to this day open to some scientific explanations. So folks, this is quite an interesting one. And what are we left with here? Do we have moonshiners? You know, a uh, hundred year plus running batch of moonshiners, you know, making moonshine in the same place, um, you know, handing it down generation to generation, trying to scare people off with, uh, I don't know what, Chinese lanterns or, uh, uh, you know, Whatever else might have, you know, been around for over a hundred years, just lantern light. Is it plasma? Is it ball lightning? Is it, you know, something to do with these earth lights that you hear about in and around earthquakes? Is it some type of uh, something to do with that? Folks, all I know is one thing. In that song that you heard before, the Brown Mountain Lights, that song was, that version was released in 1964. And he said in that song, you know, no scientist or hunter can explain. Now, you know, here we are over 50 years later and still no scientist or hunter can explain. They may think they can, but nobody's proved what the brown mountain lights are. And as far as I'm concerned, long may it rain. It doesn't hurt anything to have a few mysteries in this world. Aside from that, folks, again, sorry for uh, any mispronunciations or anything tonight. I'm dealing with a bit of a cold sore as well. So thank you for uh, listening. Thanks, as always, for uh, enjoying the program. I hope that I've done something that you've enjoyed with this episode. And if I see other articles in future about the Brown Mountain Lights, I'll try to include those in the News of the Damned. Now, the next program will be another UFO topic, which is the 1977 Caloris UFO flap in Brazil. Now, that is a really fascinating case. And if it would have happened in a in a... English-speaking country, I think it would be right up there in the top tier of UFO cases. But not a lot of people outside of Brazil and Latin America know a lot about it. They might know a little bit, but they don't necessarily know all of the details. And it's quite a fascinating one, my friends. And with that, folks, as I say, thank you so much for listening. I'll talk to you again soon. And as always, I'd like to leave you with a quote from Art Bell. 
which is that a mind should not be so open that the brain falls out. However, it should not be so closed that whatever gray matter which what does reside within may not be reached. I'll talk to you soon, folks. Have a great week.